This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined, as I always am, by my good pal and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing today? Doing good, John. How are you? Really good. And I'm really good because I've had the chance to talk with a couple of really smart guys about Arsenal Football Club, one of the most intriguing football clubs, I think, in world football today. And we had a really nice conversation about how Arsenal have attempted to solve some of the problems they had last season in the transfer window. You've just listened to that conversation, Mike. What did you make of it? Yeah, well, one of those players Arsenal added to try and fix those problems is Kai Havertz. And I think we all know that there are many opinions about him, some good, some not so good. And we kind of dove into what he brings to Arsenal and kind of the reason why they did sign him. And then another thing is the 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 huge elephant in the room, which is the, at the time, record fee for Declan Rice. And whether or not the, the fee actually matters um, over the player. Yeah, and I think the thing that I took away from it was just talking about how Arsenal are going to become antagonists this season rather than just protagonists. So they're going to come out and there's going to be big games for them in Europe in particular, but also at the top of the Premier League where they are going to have to suffer a little bit and they're going to have to work hard for for their wins. Uh, That's what we saw at Crystal Palace recently, uh, but we're going to see it happening more and more as the season goes on. So I think the best thing for us to do is to just jump straight into that conversation now. So everyone knows the story of Arsenal last season. They start off at a remarkable pace. They hold Manchester City off for a long stretch of the season, but eventually they fall away in the final month. So going into this season, Arsenal fans have been keen to see evidence that the club have implemented solutions to those problems that they saw last season. And two people who have been scrutinising the club, perhaps more than most, are our guests today, Alex Collins and Lorcan Reese from the Potshot podcast, who have recently put out an episode focusing on these topics. So guys, welcome on to the podcast today. Thanks so much, John. It's really, really good to be here. Um, really excited to discuss Arsenal with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having us. So what we're going to do is we're going to split this episode into three parts. Obviously, if we're talking about how you're going to respond to the problems of last season, we need to talk about what went wrong last season. So we'll kick off with that. We will then have a chat about how Arsenal have attempted to fix those problems this summer. And then finally, we'll go to a section where we talk about what we've learned so far about those solutions from this preseason and the early games of the season as well. So let's jump straight in with questions about last season. And I know the two of you may have felt a little bit of a pang of pain when I was reading that intro out because we (laughs) talked about the the rise and fall of Arsenal last season it's a painful topic but it is a topic that we do need to broach from the outset so Alex just talk us through the big picture version of how you think things unfolded last season for Arsenal yeah so I think the way I see it is kind of like a a story in three acts um and maybe I'll start with the first act speaking um with reference to our summer signings because I think of last season because I think they were quite relevant but yeah of course we started off fantastically last season um 50 points from our first 19 games, had a very fluid system, making use of a lot of sophisticated middle and final third rotations. 
which I think if you had to boil it all down was maybe the most notable or major evolution from our 21-22 season where structurally we were a bit stale. Um, so yeah, to speak about the signings, we really benefited from the additions of Gabriel Jesus and Sinchenko from Man City. Uh, many have made the point that their immediate impact came down to how familiar they were, you know, for coming from a similar positional system under Guardiola. But I think it's worth pointing out how much their actual profiles unlocked for us in terms of what we were able to do tactically. Zinchenko, obviously, with the ability to invert from left back into the pivot alongside Partey, became like a key part of our build-up, um, both through one being able to receive inside the block and progress centrally, quite vertically too, which I think is maybe often underappreciated in terms of how different we were from City. But then also secondly, as a result of this, pinning the midfield, dragging markers, which opened up access to other areas, in particular to our wide players. All of this kind of part of the box midfield that I think has dominated discussion since last season. Um, and then Gabriel Jesus was just so flexible and complete as a player um, in terms of the quality and what he could do. So he loved to drop into midfield, um, but he was also a key part of our rotations out wide, in particular helping to dismark Martinelli and cause overloads, um, plus create dynamic space for, for our wide players to arrive into um, versus deep blocks. Um, yeah, if anyone in the team had what you would call a free roll, I think it, was, it would be Gabby J. Um, and he was probably our best player of the season up until the World Cup. Um, and then also speak to Saliba, who came back from his loan at Marseille and instantly became a key member of our defense as that central center back in a situational build up back three, um, you know, with the three two with Gabriel on the left, Ben White on the right, and then um, Sinchenko and Partey as the pivots ahead. In my eyes, he's a huge reason why we started off so well last season. I think he's easily a top three center back in the league. Um, it's crucial to our rest defense, our ability to defend in transitions particularly on the retreats. I think he's probably the best sweeper profile in the world, definitely in the league. Um, but yeah, so ultimately the first half of our season can be sort of defined by a lot of consistency in what our starting 11 was and how we were going to play, which I guess you could say made us a bit predictable, but the fluidity and cohesion of our play um, just made it a case of teams knowing what we were going to do, but being unable to stop us. Um, and yeah, so to move into the second half of the season, I think this is where things start getting a little bit going downhill slightly. Um, it's obviously interrupted by the World Cup where Gabriel Jesus picked up an injury. And I think what we saw coming back from the World Cup immediately from Arteta was with a return to club football was um, somewhat of a reversion to our previous uh, to our previous season system. Eddie came in at central forward um, for Gabby J and isn't suited to that same sort of dropping and carrying, connecting with the wide player style that Gabby J was. Um, yeah, basically popping up all over the place. So we saw him doing more of what Lacazette was doing the season before, more up and down the center without moving wide as much, which meant less rotations and dismarking actions, which made us a lot less dynamic to defend against. Um, I think you'll notice this is the period where, which most harmed Martinelli's production until Trossard came in at center forward, really. Um, but we still kept plucking away for a while, and there were all those dramatic last-minute comeback wins, like against United, Aston Villa most famously versus Bournemouth. But I do think it was clear we weren't at the level that we were earlier in the season. Um, and teams were also figuring out how to play against us a bit more. Doubling up on the wingers was a big one, um, which you saw with that Dyke masterclass when we played Everton, his first game for the club, actually. But then also, I think, Brentford in the game after the 1-1, if memory serves. Um, yeah, side note is I think a major part of this was also our inclination to be so vertical and less considered in our positioning and our pass selection. Um, specifically talking about Partey, and I think as we go along, we'll talk about the differences in maybe the six and how we go forward. Uh, but yeah, the final act of this three-part was 
where everything really did start to unravel. Um, firstly, just with the season-ending injuries to both Tomiyasu and Saliba within 10 minutes of each other in the second leg versus Sporting in the Europa League, um, which put strain on what was already a pretty light squad, at least in terms of first-team players able to play a part in the title race. Um, the solution from Arteta was to continue with the same system, largely despite the loss of Saliba not having appropriate backup to him, at least profile-wise. So we brought in Holding, and we, while we got away with that for a bit, I do think we struggled to keep it up in the run-in, especially with City just refusing to be normal and drop points at all. So yeah, also some players who were great in the first half of the season um, dropped in the second half. They dropped to level, so Partenz and Chenko are the main culprits, I'd say. And yeah, basically it, how it ends is it leads to us suffering three straight draws, which really did feel like defeats um, in against Liverpool at Anfield, despite us going up 2-0 um, against West Ham and then Southampton. Before that, crushing for one loss against City, which pretty much confirmed the title race being over. And yeah, the rest of the season is a bit of a blur for me. Mm. Well, with the benefit of a little more critical distance and the healing power of time, you've probably both got a little bit of a better read on the reasons for the eventual disappointment of last season. So a couple of things that I picked out from what you were saying there, Alex, uh, was uh, this comes down to a combination of personnel, uh, but also uh, in terms of actual tactical inflexibility, which teams started being able to respond to. So, Lorcan, I'll come to you on this. What do you think was the, the main reason then that Arsenal tailed off in the second half of the season? Um, one of the things that I sort of generally point to is the build-up unit. Um, as Alex said, we lost Saliba and Tomiyasu in the space of literally the same 10 minutes um, in the Europa League, which I desperately didn't want us to be in anyways. Um and there was, like Alex said, there was a lack of um, backup in terms of that sweeper central centre-back profile to Saliba. And I, I still wonder um, whether we might have seen Tomiyasu in that role. Um, but overall, I think Saliba and Zinchenko were key parts of that build-up unit um, in ensuring sort of proficiency in, in that third of the pitch, if you will. Um, and then Holding came out, came in rather. Um, we weren't as proficient and on and on the other end, sorry, on the other end of the ball, um, we began to see the average defensive line height go down. Um, we didn't have Saliba's the same presence on the pitch um, in terms of the partnership he'd struck up with Gabriel. Um, there was also a Partey injury at some point, um, which was when he came back. Sort of there was a, that decline in his performance levels. Jorginho came in was actually really good, um, but we began to struggle with sort of like central compactness in the press. As again, as Alex said, coaches and teams began to find us out in, in certain parts. Um, I remember being quite impressed with the way Southampton played against us at the Emirates. Um, and then there is that element of just inexperience. It's kind of that intangible thing. Um, but we hadn't been there before. It felt like almost as a fan, it felt like we were riding a wave. Um, the team was riding a wave and that wave sort of dissipated upon the injuries and we had to sort of get back on the proverbial surfboard um, and every single point where it looked like we were getting a, a bit of rhythm, take the Liverpool game for example where we started really well, um, we just got knocked down again and it never sort of, yeah, yeah, I mean it's, it's painful just to talk about now. <laughs> yeah, so what I want you guys to do then is to, because I am interested in how you think that we are going to talk about Arsenal solving these problems. But um, as I've said, there's those two factors, the personnel factors and tactical factors. And I wonder how you would apportion the blame for what went wrong across those two factors with 
the uh, understanding that you can have other as well as another category here. So just a percentile distinction between what you think was the most important aspect in terms of the fall off. So Alex, we'll go with you first. How would you spread those three factors out? Um, okay, so I think if we speak personal factors, just broadly, it's that lack of depth and also maybe lack of like for like backups. Um, and then tactically, it's not adapting to the personal factors or being able to adapt, I would say quite broadly. So you know, in terms of pushing a blame, it's a bit of everything. Um, the personal and tactical factors really do melt into each other. Um, though since I guess personnel naturally precedes the tactics, I, I would put the blame on Ateta, I guess, for not adapting tactically to the players he had available. I, I know we've become, you know, it's become a thing where Arsenal fans kind of blame the holding situation as the reason why we, we lost the title. Um, and I do believe that, but I don't put the blame with holding so much as us not having solutions other than just putting holding in and then hoping it would work out. Um, but yeah, I guess the, the one other thing I would say uh, is just we were emotionally and physically exhausted by the end of the season. And I guess I would put that in the other category. Um, all those emotional highs were incredible for the spectator and it boosted morale for sure, I think, initially. But it's also quite an exhausting thing. And, you know, after the highs there, if not lows, there's that come down from those highs where players just can't be completely like at 100% in terms of that emotional level throughout the season. Mm. Um, yeah, I think the last thing I would say is while I apportioned a lot of the blame tactically to Arteta, it's also hard to do because I think it did really come down to lack of depth. Because I remember at the time Lorcan was actually on that pod where we were both begging for Partey to play right back in the preview to the City game. I still think he should have over... And then, you know, White moves to right centre-back, holding is dropped, and we played Jorginho at, at defensive midfield. Arteta didn't do that. Um, and while I still think he should have, uh, we just recently re rewatched that game. And it just struck out to me like how much we needed that mobility from Partey to even handle the team. So if we hadn't had him there, there would have been issues elsewhere. So I think it's just kind of, you know, choosing where you're going to be compromised by a lack of quality and depth. So that is ultimately maybe where I portion most of the blame, but definitely to some extent adaptability um, to that issue. Yeah, if, if I can just piggyback on that, because I know Alex and I do agree um, on, on sort of, the extent to which we apportion blame in various places. I'd say 50% Saliba, 30% mistakes thereafter. So under that, I'd put not playing Kivio, or essentially playing holding, where you could have played Kivio, <laughs> which we did in the Newcastle game, um, or Partey, basically not falling on the holding sword. Um, and then also load management, I think, um, as Alex touched upon, we weren't quite as good as City in that respect. And then just 20%. Um, inexperience and sort of the novelty of being there. In terms of the load management that you're mentioning there, Lorcan, the reality is is that in the first half of the season you were able to play a remarkably consistent starting eleven. Do you think that that actually did have a longer term impact? The fact that there wasn't that much flexibility in terms of starting elevens through the season, or do you think that 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 has no part to play at all? I think load management was a key issue. Um, it was almost as if we were really sprinting towards the finish line, whereas City just psychologically um, and physically seemed to have more in the tank, with the exception of maybe Rodri, for example, who seemed to play every single minute of the season. Um, but yeah, I think, again, it's easy to say in hindsight, isn't it? Because maybe Saliba doesn't go down um, and we do win the title and then suddenly it's not a major talking point. But I think in general, even just talking um, 
more conceptually, you do need to prime these players from a psychological and physical perspective. And I think that element of qualitative depth that Guardiola seems to have really honed um, definitely has helped City. It's why you, I think it's why you see like, you know, Gundogan, who's what, 32, 33, um, turn up at the end of the season because he's never played more than sort of 27, 28 games with the exception of last season. So yeah, I'd agree with that. So let's get on to the conversation about what those solutions were then. So I'll come to you first on this, Alex. My main thing was immediately just adding tactical flexibility um, as well as depth. And then, you know, on top of that, trying to improve the overall quality of the starting 11. But maybe having less of a clear starting 11 to start with. Um, it's something that we've never really seen from Arteta. It's always been very, very consistent in terms of whatever his starting 11 is, whether, you know, Smith Rowe is favoured at the time or whether he's not you know, it's always been consistent that there's not necessarily an 11 guys, but when they when he has his sort of selection, he'll go with that for as long as, yeah, he'll ride it out until it stops working and then he has to change. So I think the immediate thing was just adding that flexibility, finding profiles that, you know, would be able to come into the squad and play maybe different roles, um, as well as be able to back up the roles that we need backed up. That was my my initial thing. Like, like I said earlier, I think depth was a huge issue um, but also just us being kind of becoming a bit predictable and teams working us out. And, you know, very importantly, I think Arteta didn't really in games, whether he was able to or not, is something we'll see, I think, going forward now that we've added that that flexibility and depth, right? But wasn't able to tweak and tweak games to find solutions. It was very much just bringing on players into the same roles. Yeah, and I think it was you, Alex, who mentioned before the phrase like-for-like like replacements, um, and I think often when people think about the question of how do you improve depth, usually the the answer to that is, you know, replace a player like William Saliba who can do those things in a in a manner better than than Rob Holding was able to do in the in the end. Um, but I think in the end, what we've seen this summer is that a lot of the profiles that were brought in weren't necessarily like for like. So we'll get on to the summer in the next section, but I'm just interested. I'll start with you on this, Lorcan. In terms of going into the summer were you expecting Arsenal to just bring in those like-for-like -like replacements um, or did you have a sense that there was going to be some kind of tactical shift that was going to take place over the course over the course of the summer obviously I was curious as to the sort of players and profiles we'd bring in I don't remember actually giving it too much thought as to the specific ones those would be because I assumed we'd get Rice and I I, I did wonder to be fair whether we'd go after the Riceado dream um, but the way because I, I, I looked back at my notes as um because we we had a podcast about this that I think was the midfield reconstruction one um, and I split it into reactive ways of and proactive things so reactive was solidifying the build-up unit because that was one of the that was our Achilles heel when Zinchenko and Saliba went out last season um, the load management issue we've touched upon and then commanding more second phase control I put down which was to deal with sort of adverse game states and then the proactive um, part of it was um, root, more ruthlessness in front of goal, transcending what was the over-reliance on rotations to create threat at the time, and then that level of tactical malleability. So what you t um, talked about, John. 
Well, let's start talking about what's happened over the course of the summer because it's been a really big window for for Arsenal. I've got four key players that they've brought in. So you mentioned Declan Rice, uh, obviously the most expensive, over £100 million spent on him. Kai Havertz was the first of those signings and uh, I think maybe the one of the more unexpected signings uh, of the window. Um, so I'm keen to talk to you guys about him as well. Then Jurian Timber after the other two had come through the door, followed by, again, another surprising uh, addition in a goalkeeper who could be a starting goalkeeper level for Arsenal um, David Raya being brought in towards the end of the window so I think the best thing for us to do is to just go through them in chronological order so as I mentioned we start the summer off with Kai Havertz coming through the door fairly early on it was the 28th of June I think that he was announced and as I say it was a sort of surprising name I think for a lot of people because we have the context of knowing that that uh, Granit Xhaka was moving back to the Bundesliga. So there was that left eight position nominally open or some kind of player to fill that uh, left eight. And uh, Kai Havertz, I think, was was pretty much touted to be that player. So, Alex, how surprised were you when you heard the name Kai Havertz as a potential signing for Arsenal for the first time? I'll say initially very, but I think for whatever reason, I did almost immediately see the logic in it from Arteta's point of view. That's not to say I was in favour. I I was not in favour of of bringing in Havertz when when the rumours first popped up. Um, though since I've kind of mostly opted to trust the process, I guess you'd say, um, using some Arteta um, word language. But yeah, I think I, I where I saw it making sense is that to some extent, particularly in in possession, I think we'll speak later out of possession how he's different from Jacques. I did see it as an evolution within the system of what Xhaka was doing. And as important as Xhaka was, I was always of the impression that there was a limit in terms of what we were getting out of him offensively, despite it being very good. It was because the system was very good and served him well and that you could actually put a player in there who could do a lot better. Um, So it made sense. And then also because I think I've been on this sort of calling for more flexibility and also there has been, you know... um, sort of suggestions from Arteta since end of last season that he was looking for more flexible um, players. It made sense as someone also who could be a centre forward. So that was my initial impression is that he's someone who could play midfield in between that midfield sort of role and and centre forward, um, particularly as sort of like a technical target man to, to an extent. I think I've always been of the impression that Arteta has been after a technical target man. I did expect it someone who would be more of a focal point for the attack than I think Havertz is but it made sense to me so so for those reasons it did at the price I was very surprised 65 million is kind of crazy especially since when we were first linked I kind of thought of him as not someone who came in necessarily as a definite starter but as sort of trying to compete to start um so yeah I think it did make sense but I wasn't particularly in favorite I'm not I wasn't particularly a big fan of Havertz at Chelsea Mm. Yeah, and Lorcan, you've already mentioned that you hadn't really thought about what the tactical divergences were going to be going into the new season. But as soon as you get a player name like Kai Havertz, you're going to start immediately thinking about what those tactical divergences are going to start looking like. So what did you make of that when you saw that Havertz was being brought in, was going to be used as maybe a little bit more of a flexible uh, option in that that left eight spot with the possibility of going forward into a centre forward spot as well. What did you start thinking about what it was that uh, that Arteta was trying to do? Yeah, so um, the first thing is I really, again, um, didn't expect this to happen. 
um, was against <laughs> it and actually offered my friend um, a blank check to a holiday destination of their choice um, if it were to happen. And then it did happen. <laughs> um, so we forgot about that. Um, but yeah, I again, we, we did discuss this in, in one of the podcasts at the time. Um, I was of the belief that he would function well at sort of the tip of a diamond as that space invader um it's easy to liken him to Müller. I don't think maybe it's the best comparison, but sort of being able to um, operate in the final third of the pitch. So in that vein, I actually didn't and still don't see him as any yeah as the as the Shaka replacement. Um, I did wonder whether he could be a striker. I'm I'm still not sure. I think he he doesn't look comfortable enough in his body as a striker. Um, so I thought sort of tip of the diamond, he could suddenly look like a really good player, but then there's so many affordances and accommodations you have to make to sort of get that system in place in the first place. Um, so it was, I was scratching my head quite a bit, probably worth um, touching on with no one better than yourself, John, but um, we do have a proclivity to talk about in possession stuff. Um, and I didn't give, and I don't think we did in general give that much thought of how good he is out of possession. And I think he offers us so much out of possession, which we've already seen. Um, but yeah, I think it's just worth talking about. Well, we are starting to trespass here into the third part of this episode. So I'm going to pull us back by reminding you of Declan Rice because he was the next signing who was uh, came through the door. He'd been rumbling for a little while, so I think it came as very little surprise in the end. But over £100 million spent on him. Um, I'll go with you on this first, Lorcan. What did you feel about Declan Rice when it happened? Yeah, I think I can keep this short and sweet. Um, I was awestruck and I kind of still am, especially after that Palace performance. Um, it was a signing that I and a lot of people kind of wanted for a while, even before the the rumours surfaced. Um, it just made a lot of sense in terms of how we were developing as a tactical unit and just because, I mean, he's just a very good football player. Um, I was kind of annoyed by the saga that City got involved to the extent that they did um, and hiked up the price a little bit, but that really didn't last long. Um, so there was a bit of relief there, a lot of pride. Um, I think it was quite symbolic um, just in that in prior years, you would have seen him gone to a United. Um, you just know Fergie would have lo loved him, for example. And then Pep sort of um, was obviously in for him. So it was it was great. Um, and I'm really, really happy, still really happy that we have him. You mentioned there that it made sense from the way that you were evolving. What did you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think from a defensive standpoint, um, we've talked about how Arteta um, has quite sophisticated out-of-possession ideas um, is part of that trend of, of sort of going man-to-man -man at the minute. Um, Rice can just cover an inordinate amount of space as that six. Um, there are a few games last year where we were, where we were undone um, by the beginning of sort of Partey's athletic decline as that six. Um, and then just generally, that level of tactical malleability, he's, he started out as a centre-back. He's now a six or, a, you know, sort of transitioning from that double pivot six to a to a lone six. Um, and has that, again, you know, I'm removed as a fan, but has that mental profile, um, learning year upon year, um, developing new facets of the game really quickly. I think he's already improved since he's come in the door. Um, so he just looked like an Arteta player, an athlete as well. 
Now, producer Mike was desperate for me to ask about the, the cost of this transfer. Um, and he cited to me, actually, I think Alisson, when he was brought in at Liverpool, because Mike is, in fact, a Liverpool fan. But he was saying that a lot of the conversation around Alisson being brought in was, is this an overpay for, for a player? Is he worth this amount at this point? Obviously, that turned out to be the correct decision because he was the missing piece in the puzzle. So, Alex, would you, what do you think of the actual value that was spent on Declan Rice? I think that it's... Not that 105 million isn't an outrageous fee to pay for a player, but in terms of whether it's worth it or not, and I do think to some extent it is an overpay, but I also think it probably doesn't matter that much, at least in the current context and current climate. I think it's it's a far more significant fee if you look at, like, for example, Lyon potentially paying 25 million euros for Ernest Nuema who's quite unproven um, from FC Norgeland. That's a huge risk. And then I think, yeah, Wahi for Lance, their biggest fee paid for a player, 35 million. These are big risks where those fees are actually far more, not important or relevant, but far more impactful on the future of, of those teams' futures than I think spending 100 million is for Arsenal on Rice, right? And I think maybe that's a different problem in football. But it's also what makes me less uneasy about these sort of these numbers, despite them being, you know, hugely significant, um, their actual impact. And I think it does when you weigh all of that together, it does make rice worth it. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Well, let's move quickly then on to Jurian Timber because he's the next signing through the door. He's a guy who's been playing as centre-backs for Ajax for the previous season. And so, again, this to most of us looked like a Saliba backup, but with a little bit of added 
tactical flexibility because you can play him pretty much on either side and get him inverting as well um, in in terms of the build-up play as well. So what was your take on the Julian Timber signing, Lorcan? Yeah, um, obviously I was familiar with him. He was not a household name, but one that had been linked to bigger clubs before. Um, but I gave him a look and I did actually come to the conclusion that um, I probably wanted him to play centre-back and in that vein wanted him to be the, the Saliba backup. Um, I think initially I, I sort of overstated um, the extent to which I didn't like him in wide areas in that on the right he had lesser angles. I thought he was better sort of um, with, with more angles to manipulate the block centrally. And then just defensively, I, I still am not sure about his um, just little things like over tends to overstretch in those areas um, and, and get his orientation wrong. That being said, we've kind of, I mean, we haven't seen him play. We, di we didn't see him play centre-back um, and we saw him play f either full-back position where I thought he, he looked really good. Um, so yeah, as, I mean, obviously he's gone down with injury um, and looks to be out for the season at the time of recording, but I did think he'd feature as as that left back and right back, um, but especially left back in Zinchenko's absence. Um, he gives you that ability to sort of access central areas when he's playing left back, just because he can carry on his stronger foot. Um, and, but yeah, I would have been curious, um, just as even as a neutral, to see if he would have been Saliba's backup at some point, because um, we have to answer that question. I think now, either internally or in the market. So yeah, he looked he looked really good for the six games that he played for us, and it's a, it's a shame he's gone down. Mm. So this brings us to the end of the window then. So by the time that they brought in the big outfield players, we've mentioned David Rye, we'll talk about him in a minute, but how are you looking back at this point and assessing Arsenal's approach to the transfer window? Is this less about strengthening perceived weaknesses from last season versus adding a lot more tactical flexibility to be able to avoid the sorts of problems of last season through these structural changes, Alex? It depends what you'd call the perceived weaknesses though right um because the the one the huge one for me was the tactical flexibility and then that lack of depth um quality and depth so i think what we have done or at least up until the point that you know we lost um timber now that's taken us back a notch but we have we've addressed we've addressed those weaknesses going into the season but i think i'm, I'm not sure if this completely links to your point but one of the questions that i that i have and had after pre-season and and particularly even after the first Premier League game versus Forest was, which we spoke about on the pod, which was how much in terms of adding flexibilities is something we needed to do, but have we now done it too much to the extent that we've sacrificed this ability to build a familiar system of familiarity in terms of player relationships on the pitch? Um, what I mean by that is we have so many different profiles now, which is good. Um, it means that we can change up and we can be a bit more reactive, which is a good thing. Um, I think, as Lorcan has used before, being antagonists more than protagonists that we were last season, which I think we needed to add. But now, for example, so far Zinchenko has been injured and we don't actually have a like for like or someone who can slot into the system for Zinchenko, which means we've used Partey, you know, inverting from the right. Then there's these questions now with Zinchenko coming back. Does he just slot in and invert from the left? What happens with Partey now? Suddenly what you get with Arteta is that there's all of these like small rebalancing equations that he has to kind of go through, um, which to me, it's not necessarily a problem, but it does make his job a lot trickier because it's now 
in adding that flexibility, there's that risk of losing that familiarity and that consistency of a system that works. And it also means if you lose certain players, you may not be able to play a system that would work against the opposition that you want to. So even when you have that flexibility, it's very dependent on Zinchenko being available or Saliba being available or Rice obviously being available. I think he's kind of central to the system. So there's every system kind of goes around how we use him, but you get the general idea. So that that's that's my one sort of concern in terms of how we've addressed it is not so much whether we have, because we have, but have we gone too far in and in doing so created another problem? Yeah, so Lorcan, to pose Alex's question to you, how much flexibility is too much flexibility? Yeah, I so I mean, as we've sort of covered um, already, the vision was to sort of transcend some of the to to evolve into a into a, a novel tactical unit and and unlock different parts of um, sort of be the antagonists. I think a lot of what Ateta has planned is to be able to play against sort of the big boys in Europe um, and look like a completely different side on the Tuesday night as we did compared to sort of four days earlier on the Saturday when we played I don't know Luton at home. Um, I think in terms of how much flex, uh, flexibility is too much flexibility in the short term I think that's a relevant question um, just in that as, as Alex sort of touched upon a little bit it's take it's take it's already taken some time for us to um, to look we're not really gelling yet so whether we can get those results in the short term which we'll need um, because increasingly you, you need sort of need 90 92 93 points to win the title um, so in the short term it's a relevant question in the long term, I'm I'm fairly confident. I think this is it, it. Sort of adheres to macro tactical trends that are happening in football. Um, the ability to diversify your not game plan, but just style of play, depending on who you play against. Um, so yeah, I think the short term goals and uh, the short term um, is more more of a pertinent question, which is um, scary. But I mean, six points in the first two games. I'm I'm relaxed as of now. I'll ask me next weekend. <laughs> I've conspicuously left the goalkeeper discussion to the end of this section because I do think it touches on tactical flexibility. Uh, but I did want to ask you that question first before we came to the goalkeeper. So David Raya and Aaron Ramsdale now competing, apparently, for the first choice goalkeeper role for for uh, Arsenal. But a sense that maybe this is about having certain goalkeepers for certain games uh, and actually using goalkeepers as tactical, flexible pieces within this puzzle that we've we're very comfortable talking about outfield players like that but often don't talk about uh, goalkeepers as so yeah thoughts on the the uh, Ramsdale um, Raya uh, axis I suppose uh, Lorcan do you have any thoughts on that yeah I think um, just to say first I feel kind of uncomfortable talking about goalkeepers just because I feel like it's such a completely different sport hmm. um and at least from my untrained eye, um, when talking about goalkeepers, I think the extent to which um, the profiles of Ryan and Ramsdale have been said to differ has maybe been overstated um, in terms of they both excel at long kicking. I think Ryan is probably better in, um, with regard to weight of pass and stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm still a bit confused. Um, but I, yeah, I... I don't have much else to add. I, I do agree with, with your assessment in that I think there's a... Um, there's a Deserby clip I saw um, going around on social media where he was talking about um, how he sees goalkeepers as another squad member just as their left back or the nine or the ten um, in terms of having one, two, three people in, in, in that position, two or three, um, depending on who you play. 
So uh, it seems to be the idea. Um, it looks like we're going to activate the, the buy option, which will mean it's like, what, a 30 million pound euro um, purchase. So it's hard to believe he'll just be the cup game goalkeeper. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I it's, it's, it's sort of unprecedented, right? At least at a, a high level club. So I'm, I'm curious. Well, let's move on to part three. That is the question of what we've learned so far from pre-season and the season as well from these players that have been brought in. And at this point, we're, we're sort of, you know, tactical hypotheses on your parts, but you then got a good chance to see lots of tactical flexibility, particularly in the in pre-season, but also the season so far has been relatively tactically flexible compared to what we saw last season as well. So I think what we should do is we should go through those players in turn to see how we've seen how uh, Arteta will use them, um, starting with Havertz. So Havertz has been used as a nine in the Community Shield and then as the tip of the diamond against Forest, uh, and uh, and again in the in the, in that sort of role again versus Palace. So um, we'll go with Alex here. What have you made of his role so far for Arsenal? So I have to say, um, the game I've most liked him in was the Community Shield. I thought he was excellent. Um, I think the general impression has been of the, his league game so far that he's disappointed. And on first watch, for me, both times he did. I, I, I was a bit let down by him. On on replay, however, he comes through really well. Um, I think, particularly in the Forest game, I think he was did some of our best stuff in terms of rotating um, on the left. He's an interesting player where he doesn't really seem to stand out that much, but he's quite intelligent in terms of where he's moving. Um, I'm also not that caught up in terms of like what he is in terms of midfield or attack, but I think it's basically this floating role is what he is. And I think it's something that will... I'm waiting to judge more because while I'm saying he impresses on second watch, you still kind of want to see a little bit more, I would say. But I think it's something that he's... How effective he is is very... De- dependent on how the system's functioning overall so if and i think we've been a bit stodgy these first couple games but i think particularly in the forest game when i was re-watching it felt like a lot of we were doing a lot of good stuff where it just wasn't quite coming off because the players were doubting in those seconds or maybe one player wasn't making the movement that he should and all of these things feel minor but they're actually quite important that everyone kind of does their role and it was it was our clear strength from the beginning of last season is the rotations look so slick because everyone knew their roles right from the beginning game versus Palace last season. And I think I think he's maybe been a bit of a victim of that, whereas against against um City, where we were, you know, more the antagonists, right? More the reactive team. And he was playing what I would say is a more clearly defined role. He stood out a bit more. So so yeah, I've I've been I'm cautiously optimistic about about his performances so far I have to say yeah and it's become a bit of a trend I think in the podcast Lorcan that you see Havertz as, as more of that striker <laughs> uh, figure and you've you've also already said so far that even when he's playing in that deeper role is very much to get the most out of him as the tip of that diamond that, that you're using using him as a box crasher someone who can fit between being a midfielder but also have a box presence as well so I presume that you think that that's still the best role for him yeah, absolutely. Um, I was curious how much he would um, feature as the tip of the diamond, or in other words, how much we would actually deploy that system. And we, I mean, we have, we, we, I mean, it wasn't so apparent against, um, in the last game against Palace, but more so against Forrest. Um, so I agree. Um, I think to some extent, um, consideration of opposition is probably worthwhile in that 
Palace and Forest haven't challenged our build-up units. Um, and I think a lot of what Havertz will offer, um, aside from dual winning in the final third, which he's already done plenty of, which is, again, it's not sort of you don't, as a fan, you don't look at that and be like, oh, yeah, that's what £65 million worth of, you know, Great British pounds is worth, but I think it's it's really valuable. But one of the other things I think is he's a shortcut to build up uh, and getting and getting up the pitch and securing territory, and we just haven't needed that in the first two games of the season. Um, so, yeah, and then aside from that, as as we've talked about before, um, I think we're still coming to terms with the system. Um, he is that sort of player who's a luxury player. I still think he is um, in terms of where he is in in in, in terms of his development. He has. Elite skills, I wouldn't even, yeah, an elite skill set. Um, but you sort of need to manufacture the correct environments to unleash that, which sounds really fuzzy. Um, and I appreciate that. But I think as soon as we gel, as Alex said, as soon as we gel more as a unit, I think habits will look better. Mm. And I'm really, I love what he's doing out of possession. <laughs> I should say, I think we've kind of arrived at thinking the same best role for habits. It's just you see it more from. Yeah. forward into midfield and I see it more from midfield into forward but ultimately that that sort of in-between role is yeah is the one that suits him most and it it's a difficult role because it means that you have to kind of accommodate that in many other ways in terms of how you use your team and I think we'll probably speak about it later but the diamond is kind of a happy coincidence well maybe not coincidence because the, obviously the squad's been planned to an extent but in terms of how it makes use of guys like like Declan Rice arriving from deep also seems to suit Havertz's best spaces that he operates. Yeah, and that brings us nicely to Declan Rice, who you already talked about actually eventually becoming a single pivot. But actually, again, in the games that we've seen him play so far, some of the times he's been playing as a nominal pivot, but he moves forward uh, to the outside of that diamond that you're talking about with Thomas Partey being able to function as the as the pivot as well as we've seen there. So um, I think we've already discussed a little bit in terms of what he offers as a, as a pivot player, but I'd be interested, Alex, for your thoughts on what he offered as a, a little bit more of an advanced player in an eight who actually in build-up and in possession was moving out into quite wide areas as well. So in terms of why we're using him there for now, despite by all accounts and my own opinion, his long-term future being as that sitting six that I think that I think he played as towards the end of or in the second half, definitely, of the of versus Palace. Um, I think there's like that, that periodization aspect to it, where I think there is a recognition by Arteta of his struggles in certain aspects of building up at the moment, um, particularly compared to how we did last year with Partey and Zinchenko, able to receive on the term inside the block, where that's something that he's definitely not yet able to do, and maybe never will be, we'll see. It's it's definitely the weakest part of his game, Um but I think we've now kind of pulled him out of those situations for now and seem to actively be training him and the team in a way that we can maximize on the qualities he offers at the moment while still trying to prime him for that role. So I think if we speak to the diamond, which I was referring to earlier, um, a nice reason for that is, you know, he can come out from the left. He can kind of be worked around from being under the most pressure and it allows him to kind of receive the ball facing forward where he is very, very press resistant. And, you know, carry forward um, along the left side of the diamond, right? I think that's something where we can see it might not be in his long-term future, but it's it's the way as we're kind of building him into this positional system, we're, we're electing to use him now. Um, and I think we could even see him, like, even the, in the absence of Declan Rice, I think earlier in preseason, we were using a lot of 
underlapping runs along the left channel, um, particularly actually for Tomiyasu and Timber. And I think that was kind of training something that we can use with Declan Rice going forward. But the other example that kind of stands out is even in the last game, so versus Palace, we moved to more of a 4-1 build-up shape, at least going by my eye, um, with him as a lone pivot. And it was kind of tending more to the right-hand side in terms of his actions. And he's, he's mostly been a left-sided interior, right? And I think you can kind of see, again, there's this aspect of priming him for future roles where, you know, Zinchenko is now coming back and might be inverting from the left rather than Partey from the right. And we're kind of figuring out how Rice will be used alongside Zinchenko there. So I think, I think I've been impressed. And I remember right back when basically it was actually with Shuelan Davies on, on Potshot Pod. Um, he was the first to suggest like in January before there were links with Rice to us that we should go for Rice as the six. Um, and I was reticent about it because of his problems under pressure but I think I've always kind of liked the idea of him I can see him as a, a replacement for Xhaka in, in some ways as as an eight and I think that's how we're using him for now but we are trying to really um build him for that six and I think it's yeah it's important to recognize that will take time um I think yeah Pep spoke about Rodri taking years to learn that position when to move when to not not to move and I think It'll take time for Rice to really settle as a six for us, but but in the meantime, we're just using him in different ways so that we can still make the most of him. Yeah, and Lorcan, you've written some really fantastic stuff about the difference between using pivot players as uh, pinning players um, to actually having what we're seeing from Rice now, which is I would describe a bit more of a backline dropper, so dropping in to the backline so that he can receive the ball facing forward. So could you just talk us through just the, the, the basic tactical ideas behind that that sort of shift? Yeah, um, so I, I guess rightly or wrongly, I'm, I think about it in two sort of different ways. Um, one, as, as a bottom-up part for, for Arsenal specifically, which is Zinchenko's absence. And as uh, as Alex did a really good job introducing, um, Zinchenko was a huge part of how we could arrive um, in the final third as, sort of, uh, to, as a collective together um, in, in terms of our build-up unit. And... Um, I've already touched on how we can now sort of kick it long to Havertz or Jesus as we kind of did last season as well. Um, but we still have, there's that happy medium where we have to um, be able to arrive there a bit more steadily and incrementally. So I think that's one way of doing it. Um, and then the other way, so yeah, in terms of comparing and contrasting Zinchenko and Rice um, as that sort of second pivot, Zinchenko preferred to sit inside the opposition block um, whereas Rice is much better facing play um, and starts to learn some of the sort of conventional six duties that you don't learn at West Ham where they're sort of yeeting it up the wide channels. Um, so I think he has to learn sort of angle support. Um, and these are just, I, I really, I do think that he's learned a lot in the last month. I was quite surprised, pleasantly surprised um, by the Palace performance, not because he was put under so much pressure, but just those sort of slight movements um, blindside runs just to dismark himself or open up passing lanes um yeah and then the second way i i, I thought about it i guess is more in a, at the risk of delving into tactical theory is just a a more fluid build-up structure that we've sort of begin begun to see um among the top sides early this season which is kind of to exploit um out to my eye at least to, to exploit some of the out of possession setups um so that's being vertical uh, progressing vertically at the right times, forcing jumps, um, adapting the orientation of players and sort of 
at one moment the build-up you know it looked like a 3-2 and then it looked like a 4-1 um, and I think that fits really well just to, to come back to Arsenal with how we like to arrive in the final third which is kind of dynamically so I think it's um, an amalgamation of things um, if you will and it seems to be working quite well early on well let's talk quickly about Jurian Timber and his unfortunate injury um, I think the big question with Timber is that we talked a lot in this episode so far about how the transfer window was to offer solutions to problems that we had last season. And the biggest problem last season was the loss of William Saliba. And it feels to me as though Arsenal's still very much in a situation where if they lose William Saliba, they still don't really have a solution to that problem. Now, in part of that is to do with the fact that Julian Timber uh, is 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 probably not going to be available for the rest of the season. But I'm just wondering, Alex, what you think is the situation now? Is it the case that Arsenal do need to bring in another backup so that they have some kind of depth in case that kind of problem happens again? Yeah, um, I think we do need to bring in another player i'm just very unsure with how we go about that i i don't really have an answer as of yet um i was initially keen on sort of a solution that is in the short term but doesn't impact long term so something like lewis hall Lorcan will remember i was relatively keen on i'm also keen on the idea of fresnader coming in um these are guys that you can play out wide that kind of cover what timber offered out wide but the problem is then is that we're still left short in the middle. And if Saliba does go, as you as you mentioned, then I think even if we have Fresneda, even if we have, um, you know, Lewis Hall's already gone to Newcastle. I liked him as, a, as someone who couldn't be a like for like, sorry, as someone who could be a like for like of sorts for Zinchenko. But but yeah, he he's a big loss, I think. Um, more than I realized when we signed him, just how important he was going to be for us. Um Something that kind of gave me confidence, I think it's very hard to find these sort of players who can be sweeper centre-backs and play really well on the retreat. And Timber maybe didn't have the um, the tendencies yet, but he definitely had the pace for it. I think he's really good at at, challenge, um, at timing his challenges and arriving into those challenges. So And he's nimble, so he can go either side, um, you know, if, he, if, he play, if he's playing more centrally, which is where we use our, our sweeper. So he is a big loss. I'm I'm not particularly sure what we what we can do. I think the solution probably will be so that we don't end up clogging up the team in the middle long long term is to look for a fullback, um, and then use White to come in to the center when or even Tomiyasu potentially, um, if Saliba is to get injured. But I think, yeah, it's a it's a tough it's a tough one to be honest. Mm. Well, let's move to the final question then of this podcast episode, because I'm interested in hearing what you guys think in terms of how you assess how successful Arsenal have been in their attempts to solve the problems of, of last season, this window. Um, you've talked about how there was a lack of depth. We've talked about how there was a lack of tactical flexibility. And I think both of those two areas have been um dealt with or have attempted to have been dealt with by Arsenal. The big question I have on my lips is what is it that you guys are going to use as um, evidence that this has been a successful attempt or not? If, as you say, the, the flexibility proves to be too much flexibility and Arsenal do not actually have a title challenge this season, uh, but they end up having a title challenge next season, presumably you would consider that to be to be largely successful but I'm interested to hear from you both actually about how you're going to go around uh, assessing the success of this window so Lorcan I'll start with you. Yeah in terms of um, sort of arbitrary benchmarks if you want to put it that way 
um, I think a major trophy this season, um, you know, is is that. So whether that's the Premier League or the Champions League, and I've already I think hinted at um, at, at why I think some of the the elements of our tactical evolution this season are kind of conducive to Champions League success, which is a bit weird because we haven't been in the competition for seven years. But I think particular profiles like Rice, even Smith Rowe, who we haven't seen this season, uh, Martinelli on the break, um, being the again the antagonists. So I, I yeah, I, I I do want um a major trophy, um, which is not the FA Cup. I I I would want that to be the Premier League. I still the way I see it, um again, I have no idea the extent to which I'm actually able to remove bias, probably not that much, but I do think um City and Arsenal are in a league of their own. Um, and I don't think other clubs are quite at that level. Um, so I don't see any excuse why there wouldn't be a title challenge to mount. Um, as always, like, you know, football is a game of results, but context is is completely relevant in a sport where anything can happen. Um, so if we do end up losing on the last day of the season, as Liverpool have a couple of times, um, and we end up with no major trophies and lose to City, then obviously it's not going to be an Arteta out brigade um, and I, th- I do think, as, as Alex, Alex has already touched on, um, that we are primed to look better as the years go on. Um, but yeah, in terms of those benchmarks, I think success in, in terms of the Champions League and, and the league are the ones to look at. Yeah, I mean, I would love a trophy. Um, I don't want to put, particularly because I think we will do well in the cup competitions. And I think sometimes you can do really well in a cup competition and just lose because those are the what the football gods decide happens that day so i don't want to say like we need to win you know the fa cup or or the champions league but i do think what's important is doing better in the cup competitions than we have um and that's kind of an extension of what lawkin spoke about is being harder to beat i think that's really what i want to see us do this season it's what i think we are already ready to do with the current squad with the current system or flexible you know amalgamation of different things we can do with the system right um so yeah particularly you know against city i think is the big one like Lorcan said i do think we are in a league of our own i think but still like games like liverpool at anfield i want us to be tough to beat um and then yeah uh, my expectation for us this season and i think it's because i feel like yeah we've gained flexibility and maybe unpredictability at least in theory but maybe lost familiarity and that cohesion and that fluidity in practice so it does feel like a reset of sorts and I'm I'm still I'm still thinking through whether I think this is the right like route for Arteta to go because I, I think he has kind of made a decision to that he needed that the the lifespan of the previous system was coming to an end and needed to be changed up and I think it's it's a reality for elite coaches it's a reality for elite football or football at, at pretty much any professional level that evolution needs to keep happening I think he's kind of evolved the system I see for really shaping up to win the title next year. So that that's sort of my expectation. Um, I know we spoke about it, John, and I agree with the idea that like Arteta's not gone into the season saying I'm aiming for next season. But I think the reality of the squad is that is that for me, I think it's going to take a while for Declan Rice. I know he's he's learned really quickly, but to really nail down and become dominant in that role, I think it's going to take a year or so. I think. We'll see it at times, as you do, where things flow really well, but I think we'll also see a lot of times where it looks stodgy and, and the connections higher up in the pitch aren't happening. And I think that'll happen less 
with a year of familiarity. We really did replace some big pieces. So I think keeping keeping a good pace and getting 80 plus points in the league, but but yeah, um, but doing well in the cup competitions is basically my. If we come at the end of ne- at the end of the season, we've done well in the cups. We've got eighty points or so, and we've we've you know maybe taken a scalp against City, which is long overdue, and not just in the in the Community Shield, but in the league. Um, then I'll think it's a successful season, even though I am really hoping that we finally lift number fourteen. And and just quickly, just because I did talk about context. Um, I do think there are some on-pitch benchmarks to look at just, and we've already talked about them, but in terms of build-up, I really don't want a title challenge to be derailed by a lack of ability to build if someone goes out. Um, so however that's sourced, uh, I'm not sure whether Tommy Asu becomes the silly back- backup or we enter the market. Um, sort of those, I think you have to plan for those contingencies now that, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I-, I think early on as well, I'm, I'm a bit worried about especially in the deployment of the diamond, that the wingers look a bit too far away from goal, whereas they do be- their best work closer to goal. Um, so I think Arteta does have a task on his hand, um, tailoring the, the system to everyone. Um, and then that last one for me, again, load management, which we'll just have to see. Gabriel's already been um, rotated early on, but I still think we need to see sort of Nelson play Smith Rowe um, and, and play well. Sorry, just to add on to Lorcan, because he brought up a key um, you know, KPI for me to assess is, is Arteta this season and whether now he finally does have the squad with the flexibility, with the options, with the potentialities that he, you know, of how he can shape up the system of him actually making use of that in a way that, you know, is is positive looking forward. So Lorcan spoke about like the start, well, this is what made me think of it. Lorcan spoke about the, the the wingers in the in the diamond. Something like even trying Smith Rowe at the right side, you know, then he can go outside, Saka can come inside. These are things that I want to see from Arteta. And, you know, maybe it's like, you know, coach, you know, what's, what do you call it? Couch coaching, right? Backseat coaching. But it is something that we see Pep trying. And, and the one frustration with me with Arteta has been he'll land on something that works and then ride it till it doesn't work rather than trying to get ahead of the the curve. So I think for Arsenal, it's that 80 points doing well in the Cups, but particularly for Arteta, it's making use of the flexibility that we finally have available to us. Well, I could talk to you guys about Arsenal and football all day long, but unfortunately, podcast episodes do have to come to an end. So thank you both for coming on. I should say that both Alex and Lorcan are available regularly speaking on the Potshot Pod, and that is available at Potshot Pod on Twitter, but you can obviously find it on all good podcasting outlets as well. And if you want to find the two of them individually, then Alex is on Twitter at AlexFRCO, and Lorcan is on Twitter at number one. Uh, that's LX writes the digit one. Um, so do go and check those two out. But guys, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be on the pod. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having us. Mm-hmm.